All right, good morning. Hey, I'm Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church. It's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, we are in the book of Joel, and so we'll be in verses 13 through 20 in chapter 1. So if you would be turning there, it's uh, between the books of Hosea and Amos um, in the Old Testament. And as you're turning there, I, I want to remind us of a couple of things from the book of Joel. Uh, one of the things that's really important for us to remember is the, just the beauty of its structure. It is actually a very poetic book and is, is fashioned in a very particular way. Uh, and one of the ways in which it's, in which it's fashioned is, uh, is, is similar to all apocryphal literature, uh, is that it's from two different perspectives. You have, you have a, a, an earthly perspective, which is what we're in now in chapter one, and then you have the heavenly perspective. And both of those things go on at the same time, and they give us the, both realities that are going on. So we're going to see this morning that repentance is something that ought to be visible in us. And there's a good reason for that. We don't want repentance to just be outward, right? We don't want to rend just our garments. We must rend our hearts as we confessed, and that comes from later in chapter 2. Uh, but, but we must have some sort of outward show. Now, the reason that this is, is good and important for us to acknowledge is that the Bible is not dualistic. Now, let me tell you what that means. Dualism often separates the, the spirit or the soul from the body. And frequently in dualism, the body is less important than the soul. And so you oftentimes will have the, this idea that we need to be set free from uh, the brokenness of our bodies. We need to be set free from the brokenness of creation. But what Joel's going to tell us is we actually need to join the chorus of sorrow that's in creation because creation is under the weight of the fall as well. And we need to recognize that our bodies matter and what we do in and with them matters significantly. And so we're going to see that in terms of repentance, that there ought be some sort of physical manifestation of a truly repentant heart right? That it, there should be some outward show. And that's from the earthly perspective. And think about it, that would make sense. That's what we can see with our eyes. Repentance ought to be in some measure visible in our countenance and bodies. So the question that I have for you uh, as we start, and I get it, we're all different personalities. Some of us are a bit more stoic, right, than others. And some of us are very demonstrative. And so this will look different for different people. So don't feel like it's got to look a certain way for you. But there is the reality that there should be some evidence, right? Uh, you, you, there should be some visible sign in your body that you're repentant. So what does repentance look like outwardly in your life? And you may say, I, I never really thought about that. Understood, but it's a great time to think about it and to process what does this look like? For me, what, what, what ways in which have I actually included my body in terms of the, the physical worship, in terms of physical repentance, right? And so oftentimes we, especially Reformed folk, tend to leave the body out and make it all about the head and very little about the heart and body. Our charismatic brothers and sisters really do a great job of including their bodies uh, maybe in some ways that maybe go beyond the pale a bit, but, but we, we could do a little bit better to actually, again, as I've said, if you're redeemed, somebody ought to tell your face uh, about that and uh, let it be shown. Uh, and then same thing with repentance. If you're repentant about something, somebody ought to let your face know, right? Um, there's a time for sorrow. There's a time for a somberness. 
Uh, there's a time to, to, to not look like you're just mocking sin, right? Mocking sin's a bad thing. So what we want to get from this sermon this morning uh, is that we are called to lament, fast, pray, and worship to help us repent and cry out to the Creator along with the suffering chorus of creation with hope in Christ. That's really critical. Let me say it again. We are called to lament, fast, pray, and worship to help us repent and cry out to the Creator along with the suffering chorus of creation with hope in Christ. Let me say something here just in case you're wondering, have you stumbled into some folks that all they do is self-flagellation and there's no joy? No, that is not who we are. But there are seasons for different things, correct? Right? The Bible says there's a season for different things. And so what we want to have within our, uh, within our Christianity is the ability to respond right, using the means of grace to the various seasons. There are seasons of sorrow. There are seasons of sorrow because of sin, sin in our own lives, sin communally, sin in our country, sin in various ways, and we want to have uh, within our toolkit the ability to respond to those things, but that's not where we live all the time, is it? In fact, you're going to see that just even in this service, the last song that we're going to sing, and even before that, we're going to celebrate a baptism, which is, which is a display of the hope of the gospel. And we're going to sing the song steadfast so that we would remember that God has not forsaken us, that even though there is a season for sorrow and mourning and repentance, right, that that should be visible in our beings, in our bodies, even there's a time for fasting from, there's also a time for feasting on. And so it's important that we recognize it is not all one way or the other, but it grants us the fullness of the holistic nature of our existence in the gospel. So if you would be, uh, go ahead and turn to Joel chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, and let's read uh, the call to lament, fast, pray, and worship. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Now remember, they've never been told, like what's, what's interesting about the book of Joel is we're not real sure what date uh, it came from. There's a range of about 400 years in which it could have been, but there's no specific sin mentioned. And so what, what many scholars believe, and, and what it certainly seems to be from the text itself, is that what's happening is God is equipping his people for when the season comes and they need to repent. So the book has a very liturgical character. Now remember, liturgy means work of the people. It's the work that we do in responding to God, God's call. And so specifically here, note who he starts with. Who has to go first? The priests, the called ones, the ministers of the gospel. Remember in other places in Scripture, it says, as the priests go, so go the people, so go the land. And so it's very important that we as uh, ministers of the gospel, the elders of our church, are seeking to be sensitive to the calling of the Lord. What is the season? So often a prayer of ours ought to be is, Lord, what time is it? 
What season is it for us, your people? And of course, things can be going on culturally to signify the season. Things can be going on specifically within the life of the church, right, that would cause us to recognize what time it is and how we need to respond to that time as leaders, that we would go first and so that we wouldn't ask you to do something we have not already done and we're not already doing. That's a very sobering thing for those of us who stand in this particular position, and we have to take that very seriously. It's a heavy calling, high calling. And I have to confess to you that that's, sometimes that gets missed. We get so busy with, the, with the, the, just the day-to-day work, right? The, the keeping of accounts, the checking on things, making sure things aren't falling through the cracks that we, we honestly, we fail to ask the Lord, what time is it? Because we think we already know. Because we, we think, you know, we've been doing this for a while, and, and who wants to do sorrow? Who wants to call a solemn assembly? I appreciate what Josh said. There are just times we come in here and, and this, it's just thick, right? It's not any one of us. It's all of us collectively. There's just something that hangs in the air. And I don't know what to account that for. We could say, well, must mean Cameron didn't pray real good before he showed up. Well, that's actually not true today. Um, other times I haven't prayed real good and y'all were awesome. God was awesome. So I, that, I don't think that's the connection point exactly. Sometimes it's just the season, right? Sometimes it's just the way things feel and go. And yet, and yet, does that change God's faithfulness to be present with us, his people? No. In fact, that's what you don't want to miss here is God is saying, you have gone away from me. I am calling you back to me. He's not saying, I'm going to, notice he strikes the land first, not the people first. And so he's calling for the priests to put on sackcloth. So he's saying, evidence your repentance in your being. Put on sackcloth, which, by the way, was not comfortable clothing, depending on what you had on underneath of it, right? Uh, And he told them to stay the watch through the night. So essentially, stay up all night wailing. I don't know about you, but I ain't real big on staying up all night wailing. Fortunately, for some of you, Georgia won, so you didn't have to. God bless you. <laughs> it's, it's, but my Tennessee and North Carolina brothers, we, we weep for the season is long and sorrowful. Uh, and so, so they were to stay up through the night, and they were, they were to be attentive to the Lord. And the reason that he gives, notice what the reason that he gives because, not because they were starving to death, not, not because there was actual pain in the land because of the lack of material things. Why? Why are they called to weep and wail and sorrow? Because the Lord's worship could not be done as he had ordered it. Now, how many of us care one whit about what goes on in worship, really? And whether or not we have what we need in order to be able to worship. Or that God has what he needs in order to be able to be glorified. Right? Most of the time we put the pressure on whoever's on the stage and don't think a whole lot about how we showed up. A lot of times we who are on the stage put the pressure on you to affirm and and validate what we're doing And that's not what this is about. Remember, in worship, there is an audience of one. 
And who is that audience? It is God. So we participate together, which is why it's important that we sing together, we confess together, that we fellowship together, that we pray together, right? So this is, this is the calling is that we are in this together. This is not, it's not a group of radical individuals, each one in their own place. Remember Paul's words in Romans when he said, or in, in 1 Corinthians when he said, when one suffers, we all ought to suffer. When one rejoices, oh, we all ought to have joy, which is a great protection against covetousness. And so, so we are called into this together, which is why he's going to turn from the priests and now invite everybody else in to this great lament. Notice what he does, he calls them to do next. He says, consecrate a fast. Now, what they, all that means is that they are, they are setting aside a season in which they would fast, and fasting would include oftentimes not eating and, and choosing to pray during those seasons and times instead, but there were other things that they could keep from their own bodies. It was always, fasting is always intended to bring the desires and, and the, your physical being into the process of engaging the Lord your God. And so they were to consecrate a fast. Fasting is, it just facilitates prayer. Now, you all should have received the article that went out from uh, Guy Richard, and we're going to do a, a seminar in a few weeks on fasting uh, on, in Sunday morning. And we're going to look to, at going forward, as a congregation, periodically as leaders, as we ask God what time it is for us to fast together as God's people. Now, different ones of you will participate at different times, right? Uh, we understand that different things go on for different people. We also understand that food won't always be the best option for you. It may be something else physically that you lay aside for a brief season, um, and so we'll have a conversation about that because we want to have this as part of our tool bag, part of the things that we're able to do to glorify the Lord and to, and to follow where he is leading, right? So they, he was to consecrate a fast and to call a solemn assembly. Now, a solemn assembly is basically a worship service dedicated to repentance. Um, and that is another thing that if, if need be, we should be willing to do, Right? And, and what's interesting, though, is are we to always be a solemn assembly? Well, the answer is actually no. Isaiah 1 tells us that. Because God even says, who called this solemn assembly? Who told you that it was time for you to be sorrowful? No, this is a time for joy. This is a time for celebration. This is a time to come and reason together with me. And so it's not that we are to dwell there. But it's that we are, when God calls us to, to go there for a solemn assembly. And he says, gather the elders and the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. So they're to come together in worship using the means of grace. And this is really important. It is a means of grace for you to lament, something that we're not good at, right? And even in our music, sometimes we, we don't like to sing lament songs, right? You guys, are, you guys are kind of thinking back to last week when we had a little pep in our step, and it seemed like, man, the spirit had dropped, and maybe it was just the kick drum, but who knows? But it was good. And this week, we're the violin, and we, we, we're, we're, it's slower, and we're, how long? Yeah, how long is this worship service going to go? How long is this song going to go? Like, I love that song, so I'm not making any sideways comment. But you know you right? 
And you're thinking, no, we ought to be way more triumphalist. The music around here, it needs to step up. I know, sometimes, depending on the season and the time, the Lord says no. No, you, you need to ask me how long. For many of you, that's where you are in various ways. There are things going on in your life that you're thinking, how long, oh Lord? So that song should mean something to you, and we should, it should mean something to us to be able to sing it together. While it may not necessarily be where you are, there's somebody sitting near you that's where they are. And so we want to be able to, when one suffers, we all are able to ask that question. We are all able to go with, come alongside. And notice what it says. Do you, let me ask you this. Who do you cry out to when you have a problem? When your car breaks down, do you, go to, do you take it to the computer repair guy and cry out to the Lord? No. When, when your, your sink backs up and overflows... Do, do, you, do you call on the guy that reads 150 books a year, none of them about plumbing, and ask him to pray for your sink? And no, no, no. We, we cry out. We go after those who can actually fix what it is we got going on, who can address the issues that are bearing upon us. So what Joel is telling us, what God is saying to us, is cry out to me for what it is you've got that is broken. I alone can fix this in Christ. I alone can cover the distance that has come between us. I alone can restore to you what the locusts have taken from you. And so we recognize here yet another grace. If you would, uh, just so we recognize this is not just about the Old Testament, if you would flip real quickly to Hebrews chapter 4. Um, we, we mentioned this, this verse an awful lot, but it's worth us reading and worship and hearing again. And I would even encourage you to at some point today, even this week, take this verse and really spend some time with it. If you're one of those people who's like, I don't, I don't really get in the Bible a whole lot, here's a really good opportunity for you. It's short and it's meaningful and it'll stick to your ribs. So if you would hear again the reading of God's word, I'm picking up verse 11, this is Hebrews chapter four. Let us therefore, and listen to the language, right? So pay attention, always pay attention to the verbs in the Bible. They really tell you an awful lot about what's going on. Let us, therefore, strive. Strive to enter, and listen what we're striving to enter into. That rest. Let us, therefore, strive to enter into that rest so that, and listen to the why. Notice why this individualism falls away here. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, for those of you who don't read the word very much, you're actually proving that this verse is true. Because you don't want to have to deal with what it says. Because you actually get that it bears, it bears something. It asks for something that is not casual. And so uh, recognize that it does do this. And just because you don't read it doesn't mean this verse isn't true. Actually, that proves the point to some measure. 
And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, let that not make you afraid. Because it can sound like a fearsome thing to be exposed and naked to the Lord. But if you are in Christ, what are you? You are clothed in his righteousness. I love the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, death has been swallowed up by life. It is not that you are further unclothed, but no, you are actually clothed greater than you currently are. That's kind of the picture that we get in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve see each other and they're naked and ashamed and they make a, a terrible set of clothing out of fig leaves. And then God clothes them in great grace and mercy before he sends them east of Eden. He does the same for us. While we are exposed to him, he is a gracious and merciful God. For him to know our sin is not for us to be afraid. No, it is actually for us to fear him in the right way because he can heal that. He has provided in Christ the means by which we don't have to walk in shame and guilt anymore. That our nakedness to God is not nakedness to the world. As it goes on, so listen how it goes on here. He says, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and here's the difference in why he can be our Savior. Yet, without sin. Let us, then, with confidence. Did you hear that? Let us with confidence, and notice this, the echoes coming from Joel. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of judgment. Is that what it says? Have I got a bad interpretation? Yes, I do. If that is the interpretation, it's not. It's the throne of grace. What is grace? You who are naked before the Lord, you who have been pierced even to the marrow by his very word, who draw near to him for what purpose? For him to tell you how rotten you are? No. To remind you how loved you are how truly important you are to him as his son or daughter, you who have been covered by the sacrifice of the great high priest, Christ and Christ alone, who, by the way, wore true sackcloth on the cross and kept the night's watch in Gethsemane, remember? Who cried out to the Lord on our behalf, bearing the forsakenness that we couldn't tolerate for one second's worth. You draw near to the throne of grace and listen at what you get. That we may receive mercy. What's mercy? Well, mercy is the forgiveness of our sin. It is the reminder that our sin will not have the final say, that death is not our shepherd. No, Christ is. It says that we will receive mercy and find grace which is everything we could possibly need above and beyond our forgiveness. That is, in Ephesians, that is all of the heavenly blessings that have been set aside for us as heirs of the God Most High in Christ. And it says, and notice what it says, 
to help when? In a time of need. So there are times when we need to come boldly before the throne of grace to be reminded of who and whose we are, both mercy and grace, and to receive what we need to then go back into the world, even though still upon our lips may be these words, how long? Is it wrong for us to ask how long? No. If you're familiar at all with the book of Revelation, in the end, in 22, notice what John says. He says, come, Lord Jesus. After all that he's seen, he's ready for it to go ahead and be done. Remember also that God knows our frailty. He knows that we are but dust. He knows that we can't handle the things that we can't even handle the things of this world, which is why he sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in us, right? Like if you could, if, 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 if salvation is only about heaven, then what would we need any help between the now and the not yet for? It's not just about heaven. It is an embodied existence now. That means that how you live now, what you do in your body now matters. Many of you are feeling the effects of this. The sinful things that we do in our bodies affect us so deeply. It affects our countenance. In fact, you are evidencing in your body the countenance, the true countenance of your heart. Remember how Jesus said it's out of the wellsprings of the heart that, that the, the good things of the gospel come or the darkness and the wretchedness of our darkened hearts also wells up from there. And so what Joel is calling us to, Christ has made possible. He's made effectual. See, we're not crying out as those who don't know. No, we are crying out as those who have a sure hope in Jesus. So my, my question for us this morning would be, which means of grace are you making use of to aid you in repentance? Now, maybe you think, well, I mean, if I'm forgiven in Christ, what, why do I need to repent? Well, do remember that in the New Testament, long after Christ has ascended, that James says it's very important that we would confess our sins to one another. It's actually a communal reality. Well, we ain't real big on that one, by the way, until we're forced to, until we're a sinner caught, oftentimes. That's usually when repentance or confession comes. And yet, what God says, you're not, you're not to confess so that I then could judge you. Why are you to confess? Why are we to confess to one another? So that we could remind each other of the gospel. The whole reason that they are to go together to lament and fast and pray in a solemn assembly is not so that they would just wallow in sorrow, but so that they could be reminded of the hope that, that comes from us using the means of grace, that something actually, in fact, does happen in the spiritual realm. Even though in the earthly realm, it can be hard to see at times. And so, O. Palmer Robertson says, the current temporal judgment that they are experiencing, anticipates the great coming day of the Lord. The servant of the Lord who knows the certainty of this divine sentence must lead the way with a response of personal repentance and prayer. So he's just saying the ministers must go first and then the people are called to follow. 
So the other question that I have for us, given that that's the case, it is to be communal. Have you practiced these means of grace with other people or invited other people into the process of repentance? Or are, are you of the mindset, no, 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 I'll take, I can take care of this. Well, you have a fool for a counselor, as Proverbs would tell you. And you may say, yeah, but I'm a better fool than most of y'all. Oh, that's fascinating. I didn't know it was a race. I don't want to win that one. And so, so it's important that we, we recognize as a community of people, if people are going to share these things with us, what it is we're supposed to do in response. We're not to beat people up. We're not to further expose them. No, we're to apply the balm of Gilead. We're to remind the gospel. We're to actually be able to see where God is at work, where that person may have gone blind. I've said this before. I feel like the majority of what I do as a pastor, like the greatest work that I can do for you is to be able to see what you can't in terms of how God is working in and through you. Because so often we just get so lost in it, don't we? We get so lost in the suffering. We get so lost in the failures. We get so lost in the mistakes that we don't know how to define it anymore. We also have a very strange view of what the victorious Christian life looks like. It's interesting, and if we were to use Luke 15, 1 through 7, as evidence of the victorious Christian life, meaning all of heaven breaks out in a party when we do this, what did it not say? Heaven doesn't break out in a party when you're awesome. Heaven breaks out in a party when Jesus is revealed to be awesome in his forgiveness of our sin. You see, it's not when we get it all right, because that's, that's us. We break out in a party when we think we've gotten it all right. But heaven doesn't. Heaven breaks out in a party when we remember who and whose we are and we use the means of grace and we recognize that we can't be victorious apart from Christ. And it's not, uh, it's not a call to just constant self-flagellation. It's not a call to only remember you're a sinner in need of saving. It is a call to, re to remind you what it means to be a son or daughter of the God Most High. That you have access to mercy and grace. So we can wail for a season. We can ask how long for a season because it is but a season. Let's turn back to the text and look at verses 15 through 20 as again he's going to give us another vision of creation groaning. He says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Now that's a very important statement. So who's judging whom? Did the locusts just on their own decide to come? Was it a nation that rose up in its own strength to judge the people of God? Better said, is this thing out of control or are there boundaries? Remember the book of Job. Could Satan do to Job whatever he wanted? No, boundaries were set. Now, that doesn't answer all the questions we may have. But what it does tell us is that God is gracious and merciful, and he truly is kind and long-suffering. And so it says, is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up, how the beasts groan. 
The herds of cattle are perplexed because there's no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Again, this is yet another picture of God striking the land from the earthly perspective. Notice he uses yet another image, fire. First it was locusts, and then it was a a nation that would rise up. Now it's fire. Why fire? Because that is the means of the wrath of God. And so he's making it well known to them, this judgment comes from my hand. And if it comes from his hand, to whom should they cry? Him. Whom should they fear? Him. And nothing else. Now notice the effect that it has on creation. If you would, flip to Romans chapter 8. And let's look at how Paul picks up this same imagery. And some would argue that he is pulling this from Joel in some measure. This is, I'll start in verse 18, I'll read through 25. For I, Paul, consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Did you hear that? In Christ, the suffering that we would endure, the how long that we would ask, while that is significant, he's not saying it's insignificant, but in comparison to the glory that is to come, in comparison to the hope that we have in Christ alone, by faith alone, through God's grace alone, it just doesn't even compare. Now, that should be great news to us. Again, don't let that minimize your suffering. That's not what it's intended to do. It's intended to grant you hope in the midst of the darkness. He goes on to say, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies, Not just our spirits, but our bodies. The resurrection will be an embodied existence, which is why we need a rich theology, a rich anthropology of the body itself, which we often lack. For in this we hope, in this hope we are saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, We wait for it with patience. Notice the role that creation plays in all of this. I love the the fact that Tolkien and Lewis had such a rich understanding of the power of creation in the story. I just finished the Chronicles of Narnia for the first time. I I know I, I feel like slightly legitimate as your pastor. I've yet to read the Lord of the Rings, so I'm not there yet. But I'm I'm gonna get there someday. But in the last battle, 
I, I just love the way that, that part of the, how they knew things were, were going bad in Narnia was they were, they were cutting down the talking trees. And that was such a, a profound thing, and creation played such an amazing role in, the, in, 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 in telling the story of the gospel and reminding the people of who really was their Savior. And that was one of the ways you could, they could make the distinction, right? Is that they knew that the, the false Aslan would never, never turn on his created order. They were confused for a bit, but the ones that, that knew... Uh, that, that understood that was the way in which they were able to fight back against it. Now, there's a number of theologians and uh, uh, people who don't believe who are quite confused as to why uh, we oftentimes as Christians have the view of the environment or creation that we do. Now, let me be careful here because I understand that environmentalism is kind of a tricky thing in that it has some religious elements in terms of pantheism and some other oddities. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is a rich biblical view of the stewardship that we are called to in terms of creation and the role that creation plays in displaying the glory of God. My neighbor, uh, she has planted this amazing garden. And it's got fruit trees and it's got all kind of crazy stuff in it. And, and she's planted it not just for her and her family, but she has made some of the best salsa you're ever going to eat in your life. And then some sort of mango jelly jam circumstance situation that I, I don't even know. I, I just, I hope it's in the new heavens, new earth. I really do. Uh, and she has used this to beautify our area. But something interesting has happened. Before they moved in, people threw trash out along our road all the time irritated the stew out of me. Uh, I'd often try to catch people because that's the best thing to do as Christians, catch somebody in the act and give them the old hairy eyeball because that don't go weird at all. Uh, but since, since this garden has been planted, people aren't throwing trash out much anymore. Now you may say, who cares about all that? My point is beauty matters. And there's ways in which we can embody things. We have planted a flower garden, and it is, it's interesting. Uh, it's a butterfly garden. It's of no use to anyone except the hummingbirds and the butterflies and the moths and all the other strange creatures. Uh, the bees that have, uh, we, we, we had no bees when we first came, but uh, we planted some hyacinth or something. It's hyssop. Hyssop is like crack cocaine to bees. If you want bees in your yard, plant hyssop. They go crazy over that stuff. Uh, and so uh, now there's all these like little baby bees. It's, it's, it's wonderful. It really is. And, and, it, and it, it just it beautifies things in ways that other things, utilitarian things, just don't. And it's actually sparked some conversation because we've, we've shown that we actually care about things, which means we might just care about people. And so how we tend and steward creation is often a reflection of what we think of God in our own hearts. And so there's a way in which to do this that's not you break down crying every time somebody cuts down a tree, but instead recognizes that those, those things serve a purpose, right? That we are part of this glorious creation and that creation plays a part in the redemptive process. It matters. The Hebrew here actually um, renders more that the, the beasts, instead of panting for uh, and even um, 
groaning for, it's actually language of prayer that's used in the Psalms. So what's interesting is it's as if the beasts are praying. Now, I'm not trying to get weird here because uh, they, they don't, I don't believe them to have souls as such in, in need of saving. I do think that there will be animal life in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, but, but, but what this says is, is if the beasts know where to go, how much more should we? If the beasts know who would provide and who would take care of them, how much more should we know who are uh, crowned with honor and glory and considered by the Lord our God? So creation has some things to teach us if we would but pay attention. It cares how the story is going to end too. So should we. Listen to what Raymond Dillard, Old Testament scholar, says about this. He says, all the living creatures look to God for their food. The lowing and the bleeding of the cattle in their distress become their prayers to the creator. It is joined to the prayer of the prophet himself. And you may say, that sounds weird. What did we read in Romans 8? We and creation groan together. It's not beyond the pale. It is joined to the prayer of the prophet himself. The locust plague had subjected the land, once flowing with milk and honey, to want, privation, and futility, so that the whole creation groans in its suffering, looking for redemption. If the dumb, quote-unquote, animals could recognize the Creator's judgment and might turn to Him in prayer, could not Israel. Now, which way do you run when you're disciplined by the Heavenly Father? We ask that question a lot, and you may say, man, no, you need to ask it because you, you all don't run the same direction all the time. I don't run the same direction all the time. I need to hear it again. So which way do you run when, as, as Josh said, you feel the heaviness of God upon you? You feel him pressing down upon you. Do you run to him? Do you do what is in season to do? Or do you ignore, deny, and go the other way? Are you afraid of what he's going to say when you get there? Are you afraid that you may have to change? You comfortable with the devil you know? And then which scriptures, and this is, this is a really important thing, and I want you to spend some time thinking about this, because if you've got nothing in the storehouse, it makes it really hard. But which scriptures... Do you turn to to comfort you amidst God's gracious discipline? A few good candidates would be Psalm 32, Psalm 51, Psalm 6, which we read as our uh, call to worship this morning, Luke 15, all of it, any of it, all parts of it, Luke chapter 5, which has been our assurance of pardon. May we be reminded of who and whose we are. You need that. I need that. We need that. And even better that we would do that in community so we could remind each other. But that would mean we would have to be known. And so you need something in the tool bag. You need the ability to be able to lament and fast and pray and worship in times of great need. So Joel 1, 13 through 20 teaches us at least these things, that we are called to lament, fast, pray, and worship so as to help us to repent and remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. That's the whole purpose of those things. 
It's not to tell us that we are worthless. No, it's actually to help us understand our worth. And then we're also to cry out to the Creator in the suffering course of creation with hope in Christ. We have not been left to our own devices. We've not been left to perish alone. No, Christ comes with us. Christ is in us. We are in him. We are in union with Christ. And that means something. That matters. But if you never think about it, if you don't access, if you're not abiding in him, then you are not bearing fruit that is to the glory of God. That seems like a hard word, but wouldn't you want to know? Wouldn't you want to know when you're off course? And how good is our God that he continues to chase and pursue us, to condescend to us again and again and again? 